This is doomed to repeat. Welcome to Doomed to Repeat. I am your co-host, Nick Hoffman, PhD candidate at Georgia State University, and my co-host, as always, is... Alex Cummings. Here I am, Rocky Lake Hurricane. As you can tell, we're talking about the 1980s today. In fact, we're talking specifically about our old arch nemesis, Russia. Frankly, when we planned out this episode, it was a while ago, and we thought Russia was going to be a topic that would be interesting. And it went from a topic that would be interesting to one of the most trending topic on Twitter, if I want to be a tool bag. A monomania, if you want to be even more of a tool bag. <laughs> I mean, it just it's the kind of thing that when we were pitching, we thought would be interesting because of its topical nature. Now it's the tip of everyone's tongue, and frankly, it's become kind of a terrifying moment. So we thought an interesting way to simplify this, to make it more contextual for all of you out there in Radio Land, was to talk about 2014 in a very stupid event in our history. Seth Rogen and James Franco were putting out a parody of The Great Dictator called The Interview. This parody became notorious in American movie history because the distribution company and production company, uh, Sony Entertainment, was hacked. And in that hack, they got everything from Bond scripts on Skyfall to information about how much everyone hated Adam Sandler (laughs) to threats about the interview. This meaningless, stupid comedy starring James Franco suddenly ended up with actual gravitas, with, with importance international significance for a really stupid well I mean it's a James Franco and Seth Rogen movie they should be running into the mummy or into Frankenstein's monster they should not be causing international relation crises why this reminded me of all of this a bunch of stupid emails got hacked and it led to an international crisis at the time President Obama was challenged onto how safe America really was from cyber attacks could he do more And now, in the wake of the 2016 election, it seems like we are on the cusp of a digital Cold War. Russia has now taken that baton and run with it. And frankly, you know, to be honest, though the North Koreans took responsibility for it, it was a hollow claiming responsibility, not unlike how ISIS or Al-Qaeda takes credit for every minor terrorist attack around the world. Right. This was a moment where a few simple emails about a stupid movie caused everyone to be so nervous that they literally pulled the movie from theaters. And now we're in this world where email hacking seems to really matter. I think one of the things that's really interesting about that whole situation is I remember President Obama was criticized by Republicans for being very weak and feckless and not really having any answer. I mean, what was he supposed to do? Uh, You couldn't, you know, wage war on North Korea over a Seth Rogen movie. Apparently, we put sanctions on North Korea, even though they produce absolutely nothing except famine and weird haircuts. Obama was caught flat-footed, and I could tell when I saw his press conference about it that he really didn't know what to do. So this puts us in a situation where, you know, this dumb movie was sort of a canary in the coal mine about our vulnerability. And now, you know, several years later, something much more significant has happened where, you know, a bunch of Macedonian teenagers (laughs) making fake Twitter accounts can turn the world on its axis. So where does that leave us? And how does this change our understanding of the larger history of the United States and Russia slash the Soviet Union, which is something as teachers uh, and scholars and historians we've been talking about our entire careers. Like we always do, let's contextualize this. The Cold War is this weird kind of thing that seems to always exist. But Russia came out of World War II 
and immediately made us challenge whether or not we were the heroes of World War II. There is this moment where we feel like the Soviets have gotten the best of us when we realized that they got nuclear weapons in 1947 and did they steal them from us? Who who gave them the information? And you have the Rosenbergs and you have McCarthyism and this fear that the Soviets could be anywhere. And, and, then, and then there's Sputnik. I mean, you want to talk about, with what we can actually do with satellites, it's so silly, but the idea that you could look up into the night sky, you could turn to a radio station, and you could just hear the kind of ambient beeping of the Soviets' omnipresence. That's a truly horrifying moment. And, you know, there, there are all these challenges to it, you know, even to the Soviet space race, where if you never want to sleep again, you can look up on um, YouTubes because that's where conspiracy and aluminum foil lives. But, you know, <laughs> there are challenges that, you know, the Soviets let a lot of cosmonauts die just so that they could prove to us publicly that they were ahead of us. You know, that Yuri Gagarin made all these incredible records that they were willing to sacrifice their own people to let that happen. We are fighting that kind of enemy for 50 years. But I think that, you know, the other side of this is that, you know, the two of us and some of our listeners uh, grew up sort of in the in the wake of the Cold War. I mean, I think one of the first really big events uh, that I remember is the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? And then as soon as it was all over, it all seemed so distant and silly almost. Like, why did this happen? Why why did these two countries uh, put the fate of all life on Earth at risk over this ideological conflict? It seemed to recede into the distance. Obviously not people have to teach about it, but it became something remote and alien, especially for the uh, millennials you know, they weren't even alive when the Soviet Union existed. No. So now that we are supposedly in what people are calling a new Cold War, it it's just like the, the camera angle has just, you know, shifted so sharply. And it shifted really sharply in 1989 and 1991. And now it's shifted again. In 2012, Mitt Romney was laughed at for saying that Russia was our biggest geopolitical foe. In many ways, uh, that comment looks very different in a post-2016 world. So where does that leave us? For those of you who are too young, you have to imagine it kind of like, you know, 9-11. When my parents were growing up, they knew of this threat. You know, my, my dad was born in 51, my mom was born in 60, and there's this, the, the, the omnipresent duck and cover drills and this fear of nuclear war constantly is kind of like the fear of terrorism that you guys were growing up with after 2001. And then, you know, this fear of Cold War annihilation faded. It dissipated with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with the dissolution of the USSR, with with Gorbachev leaving office, and literally the ending of the title of, you know, President of the Soviet Union going away. This leads us to our first interview. Our first interview is Jack Moran, who is a professor of political science at Kennesaw State University. But he is a perfect uh, example of someone that we are we got for a good reason. <laughs> we did this one right. Uh, he was uh, working for the State Department when the wall fell. And so he was actually working in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and um, will tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there. And, I mean, I grew up watching a lot of Bond movies, which we'll get more into after this, but you know, the, the pictures of the movie GoldenEye of leftover nuclear weapons and missiles that could just be found by people or the Nick Cage Lord of War movie. You know, there really were little warlords that effectively ran the Soviet Union for a while, and we'll get into that. So um, enjoy 
this little interview segment with Jack Moran, and we'll come back after it. <laughs> that was almost radio appropriate. I hope we leave that in. The Soviet Union will be pleased to offer amnesty to your wayward vessel. The Soviet Union? I thought you guys broke up. Yes, that's what we wanted you to think. <laughs> Must crush capitalism. Hi, this is Nick. Yeah, hi, Nick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good, thanks. Well, I appreciate you spending some time talking to me today. Can you give me your full name? Oh, okay. My full name is John Moran, but I go by Jack. And what's your position at uh, KSU? Yeah, a professor of political science and international relations. International affairs. Jeez, I don't want to get that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you need a vacation, Jack. I imagine a lot of people, you know, as someone who had to teach APUS for years and years, my class kind of ends right at the Cold War. And okay. so I wonder how many people were kind of baffled by what this Russia is now. And, you know, mm -hmm. they imagine, you know, Bond villains and they imagine the Kremlin and, you know, they learn about Stalin, but very little in between. Right. I think the Cold War part of it is something that people are aware of. And yeah. then in the last few years with the invasion of the, you know, the Ukraine and all this kind of almost rebuilding of empire. Mm -hmm. it, I think people don't know where this is all coming from, and the history right, in between right. has dropped away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, although I will say that I'm not sure that it's uh, just necessarily the, the man on the street uh, that didn't know what to expect from Russia after the end of the Cold War. I mean, I, I, I think nobody really understood uh, where Russia was going, including the Russians themselves. I mean, you know, I, I think we had initially this idea uh, that, um, you know, Russia would become a democracy, that it would join the Western family of nations. And, um, and you know, that lasted, a, that, that sort of dream or ideal would have lasted quite a good period of time. I, you know, I don't think we're there now. You know, I think, in a sense, Putin is, is a return, not to communism, um, but to pre-communist Russian past. At the fundamental political dilemma that Tsarist Russia faced in the uh, in the 19th century, is uh, these two dilemmas that are fundamental to Russia are still very much in play today. But I think most Westerners don't understand those dilemmas because it doesn't fit uh, within their, you know, political ideas. In Western Europe, it's fairly easy to understand the political spectrum. You know, you have people on the left and you have people on the right, and uh, where an individual falls depends on how involved. They believe that the state should be with regard to economic questions. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's fairly straightforward. The, you know, forces of the right in Western Europe uh, want less state involvement. The, those on the left want more state involvement. It, uh, I think here in the United States, we don't have uh, quite that same ease of understanding because we actually have, like the Russians, two fundamental dilemmas. They're a different dilemma than the Russians have. Uh, but we also have sort of this uh, economic spectrum, much like the, uh, the Western Europeans have. But at the same time, we also take into account sort of the expansion or non-expansion personal freedoms. Uh, Russia, the politics of Russia, uh, uh, since the end of the Cold War, they also, much like us, have two fundamental dilemma, neither of which, quite frankly, deal with the mm, involvement of the state uh, economically in, you know, sort of the macroeconomic questions of, of Russia, 
really their their more economically oriented question deals with the question of development. What economic development pattern should Russia pursue? Should they pursue a European pattern, uh, which uh, the United States also follows, you know, the Western world uh, sort, of, sort of went down this sort of free market uh, and, and sometimes painful development, economic, uh, economic development program, or should the Russians pursue something that's non-European? Many Russians don't consider themselves European, although they are conflicted about that. And uh, so if Russia is a non-European country, perhaps it should not pursue a European economic development pattern. Well, Mm -hmm. at the same time, their second dilemma deals with this question of power projection. Uh, Should Russia be a great power, like in the old Soviet days, uh, or even in the czarist uh, period, or should it be sort of like a nation state, like we find in Western Europe? You know, should it be like France, you know, or Germany or Spain or Italy, where, you know, one uh, national group dominates the country and the sort of the culture and everything else stems from that national group, be it, you know, English or French or whatever it happens to be. And so, you know, if you put these two sort of dilemma into play in trying to understand Putin, it actually makes a great deal of sense because on the one hand, yeah, he's doing these things that are sort of power projection outward, you know, the area of the former Soviet Union that are, you know, in, in now independent countries uh, that they call the near abroad. I mean, Putin very much insists on being the, the, you know, influential power in the area. You know, do they want to actually annex these areas? Well, for the most part, no, uh, although we obviously saw the exception there in Crimea. And whether eastern Ukraine is going to fall into this or not, it, actually formal annexation is, is, is an open question. But I think in the eyes of most people, I, it's very unlikely he's going to sort of try to annex the five Central Asian countries and certainly not the Baltic countries uh, or the, uh, the three uh, Caucasus area countries as well. But nonetheless, Russia wants to be the influential uh, player there. Yeah. Part of the human cost of the fall of communism that I've always assumed is that, you know, you have this massive population that has always lived under communism. And so as it falls, you have this huge collapse, not only politically, like you said, this question as to will we ever be a superpower again? But oftentimes, you know, how does this non-supportive economy work? And so I was kind of wondering if this, you know, this power structure, this kind of big push by someone like Putin is like, well, if we can't have the old economy, we should at least have the old power. You know, is that that why a strong man can come back to power in this way? Yeah, I think in many ways, uh, the language we were using in the mid-1990s was our fear of a Weimar Russia. You know, that, that is, say, a country that's been so humiliated that it will rise up aggressively. And so in a sense, yeah, There are many Russians that like the idea of a strong Russia, not necessarily a belligerent one. They, you know, don't want to be seen as a laughing stock. But the the economic thing, it does take time for a a more Western-like economic structure to be put into place. And and by the way, nobody really knew how to do it, you know, whether it's Jeffrey Sachs or or whoever. They were just sort of shooting in the dark, hoping, well, maybe this will work. You know, maybe a voucher system will work. Maybe, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. the brightest minds in the West really didn't know how to convert a communist economy into something that was free market. You know, things obviously are looking better now than they were in 1992 uh, economically. 
there are some obviously serious weaknesses to, uh, to the development pattern. I mean, reliance on oil obviously being, you know, the big one. But, you know, younger Russians have a, a much more Western mentality with regard to economic matters. You know, in the West, young people, when they go to school, they're sort of trained to think that, well, you know, you have to sort of get ready for a career, learn how to write a resume and understand that the job market is fluid. And, you know, there's just this whole mindset associated with working within a free market economy. I mean, they, People get laid off and fired, and you get back up and get another job. And uh, this is obviously completely alien to anyone that was socialized within the Soviet Union. You know, they would have one job their entire lives. I remember in 1994, I was speaking with an elderly Russian woman who took great pride in the fact that she not only worked for the same agency for 40 years, she actually worked in the same physical office. You know, she on the same floor in the same building for 40 years. And yeah. I remember just being speechless when I heard that. I thought, wow, this is it would be completely impossible in the West, you know. I think most people, when they hear Russia coming up um, in the news, it's in regards to other nations that we're also trained to think of as political enemies, like Iran in the UN or something like that. You know, they're they're allying with these kind of Middle Eastern powers to vote down certain bills in the UN Security Council. And so, you know, is this creation of a kind of new, it's not really a Cold War, but is it kind of creating these allies against? Because I know even recently, Putin started to make moves towards like China, which would have been a which was a weird kind of alliance during the Cold War, but it's a very different kind of alliance now. Again, I, I think there was a great deal of hope in the uh, early post-communist period that, you know, Russia would join the Western family of nations. You know, I, I think that there are some historical and cultural reasons why that, that is a challenge, but we didn't always do the right thing in trying to encourage Russia to do that. What I have in mind primarily is expansion of NATO into um, Central Europe. I'm not convinced that that was necessary. Uh, Russia hardly had a military at that time that could be threatening to anyone. They they were having a heck of a time dealing with Chechnya, which is you know some an extremely small area of of Russia. You know the, the thought that they could you know rebuild their military and attack uh, Europe at the time, which was the whole point of NATO was to defend Western Europe. But then to to expand it, uh, I think sort of antagonized the the nuclear armed uh, country with, that we were trying to bring into the Western. You know, in other words, Russians saw that as a, as a terrible betrayal. It betrayal is a strong word, but I, I think that's what many Russians felt as, as these countries joined. You sure, know, and well, it's, I, I guess it's yeah. a sign of the weakening Russia. You know, it's this expansion that we were yeah. kind of talking about earlier. When the Soviet Union collapsed, obviously there are all these stories of armies and like colonels selling weapons and the kind of people who kind of become almost Russian mafia bosses that were selling out these weapons because the the nation collapsed so quickly that the Soviet Union was crumbling and these weapon stores were often left unlocked. You know, does, does that play a part in this, that all these regional powers suddenly are becoming highly armed and Russia in a weakened state feels like it needs to increase in power, to step up its game so that it is not threatened by these small rebel groups? Well, yeah, I'll say two things to that, that question of uh, proliferation of weapons. That was uh, obviously a real concern of the West, and 
the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program here in the West, you know, uh, basically providing aid uh, to Russia to try to safeguard, particularly the nuclear stockpiles. Um, 1996, I worked in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and I spent most of my time working for the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. It is a very bipartisan, very popular program here in the West, and and did help to try to safeguard those nuclear stockpiles. Um, but then the second thing I'll say, and again, I think that was a critical program uh, in helping to safeguard that. But at the same time, uh, I think that we were somewhat lucky that we rarely saw among professional military officers that sort of, you know, selling their weapons and that sort of thing. Uh, they, uh, the Russian army was sort of down and out, but they did still, by and large, have some sense of, if you will, honor and, you know, they were concerned about protecting their country, as most military officers in any country are concerned about. And, and we did have some instances of corruption. It tended to deal with sort of black market activities and, you know, bringing in Mercedes-Benz from Western Europe or something like this. But we, again, tended not to see uh, dangerous weapon systems being sold for personal gain among the, the Russian officer corps. So, yeah, we I think we got a little lucky there, at least to the best of our knowledge. Uh, you know, of course, there are state policies that are a little different, you know, Russian aid to the Iranians, for instance, you know, that, that's sort of a different, a different story there. But yeah, I think, I think we, we, we got lucky there. Um, again, at least so far we have. You know, I guess the last kind of big thing we should touch on is, I guess, a leading question, because I know how this idea is viewed mostly, but is this a situation of kind of a clash of civilizations where we've tried to westernize Russia and it's just not westernizable? You know, it's, it's this different society that is going to always push back. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, I mean, a lot of, uh, lots been made out of that clash of civilization idea, but yeah, I mean, I think there are some fundamental cultural values that, are simply different between Russia and the West. Again, the Russians um, are Western-like in some ways. You know, I don't think, for instance, that the cultural differences between the Russia and the West are as, uh, as different as they are, say, between China and the West. Those differences are uh, somehow slightly more significant. And in fact, I think a lot of a lot of Americans and Westerners are confused by this when they see Russians and they see those similarities and sort of say, "Well, gee, they they must be similar in every way." But as we're learning, uh, they 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 really aren't, and they are really very distrustful of us. Maybe more distrustful than than is warranted. But I think we really need to understand that they don't trust us and that they do want to be treated with respect, um, just as any country, quite frankly. You know, Russia has contributed to world culture and literature and music. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing country, but it's also contributed its, its share of, of, of tragedy uh, as well. Oh. It's a big country. I guess when it does things, it does things dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, so, I mean, yeah. in that way, is this more like the kind of revisiting of the great game than it is of a, a Cold War, like kind of a similar powers competing over similar things, and it's more of a rivalry than it is a clash of civilizations or, a, or like a, a heated Cold War period? Yeah, I, I'll say yes and no to that. The yes part is, yeah, if there's a rivalry and the United States, in terms of its foreign policy, is trying to influence countries throughout the world. And, and 
you know, foundationally, I think that we would like to see the growth of democracy in countries throughout the world, and we say so openly. Uh, it is more challenging in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan than in other countries. And so, yeah, I think we are trying to create images of ourselves uh, abroad. I'm, I'm less convinced that the Russians are trying to do that. I mean, they want to be influential, but I don't think they care much about recreating themselves in, in the, even in the near abroad. Um, and, I, and I think that's what's different. I mean, when the Soviets went into to Afghanistan, they really, well, they were there to bolster a, 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 an Afghani communist regime, actually, that had been put in power there. But their intention was to rebuild, you know, have a communist uh, satellite state on their, their southern periphery. I don't get the, the feeling that they really are that interested in that anymore. I mean, with regard to their foreign policy, I mean, they're very concerned about uh, ethnic Russians living in the near broad. And if they see any threat to those ethnic Russians, then they feel duty-bound to step in to help them. And, and uh, you know, I'm not sure that it's justified necessarily in this way, but this is what they're saying with regard to eastern Ukraine and Crimea. You know, so, again, it's this distrust of the West. You know, the, the many Ukrainians were just sort of saying, we want to be a part of the West. And for, for Russians, those are fighting words, particularly with regard to a country that was a part of Russia for many hundreds of years, and it's the very birthplace of, of Russian culture. I mean, really old Russia, old uh, Rus, came from Kiev. And so it's, again, I'm not sure that most Westerners, at least on the street, understand that dynamic of the heart and soul of Russia sort of being involved with Ukraine. Well, um, you know, I appreciate this. Is there any any last thoughts before uh, I let you go here? Yeah, well, I'm not sure I necessarily have any conclusions because I'm not sure anybody really knows where uh, where we're all going with this. Um, you know, uh, again, I think understanding it's important for the West to understand some of the fundamentals about uh, about uh, Russia, and it's harder for us because really we we are different. You know, we're yes, we're all humans, and we have some basic human needs and desires and that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, different assumptions about the role of the state and uh, political values and cultural values and the like uh, are different. And I think if we understood uh, those with Russia, we our, our policy might be a little bit more effective in creating a safe, secure international environment for everyone. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. Now, look, boys, ain't much of a hand in making speeches. I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important is going on back there. And I got a fair idea of the kind of personal emotions that some of you fellas may be thinking. Heck, I reckon you wouldn't even be human beings if you didn't have some pretty strong personal feelings about nuclear combat. But I want you to remember one thing. The folks back home is uh, counting on you, and by golly, we ain't about to let them down. Tell you something else. 
this thing turns out to be half as important as I figure it just might be, I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moran, for uh, spending the time talking to us about your storied career and your depth of knowledge about uh, Russia-U.S. relations or Soviet-U.S. relations, as it were. And we're going to sort of uh, shift into a little bit different gear here. We're going to talk about a much longer sort of angle of vision uh, that goes beyond the Cold War. It's really hard to think about Russia or the Soviet Union without thinking about the Cold War. But, you know, we have relations that go back a long way. Um, part of our country used to be part of Russia. You know, we bought Alaska, which is the biggest state, which is full of oil and natural resources, which gave us the Wasilla Hillbillies. Alaska has done great things for America. But nevertheless, the United States and Russia have had an intertwined history for a long time. A point of view that starts with, with 1917 or 1945 or 1991 or 2016 sort of obscures. So we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to think about this bigger picture of the relationship between the United States and Russia slash the Soviet Union. We're going to talk to Sean Gillery. He's an independent scholar. He got his PhD in Russian history at UCLA. Uh, he runs a very widely read and popular uh, blog called Aptly Sean's Russia Blog. He does the SRB podcast. He's been quoted in The New Yorker and many other uh, very prestigious media outlets. And he has a lot to say about this. And I think it's going to be really interesting. See, the thing about the U.S. and Russia is there's just this weird twinning effect that has happened. America looks at Russia or the Soviet Union as its black mirror or a funhouse mirror. It, it's this weird twin of us. And we see our own, our own strengths and our own weaknesses exaggerated or muffled or distorted or put into a weird shape when we look at Russia, whether it, we see it as a czarist or oriental despotism or communist fanaticism, or they're better than us, they're smarter than us, they're sneakier than us, they're stronger than us. You think of the moment of Sputnik and a collective national psychological freakout in the United States about that menacing uh, red bleeping button in the sky. You know, we look at them and in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we looked at them and saw them as weak. And we saw them as the proof of our own superiority, the superiority of our own social, political, economic, cultural system. At other times, like what happened after the 2016 election, we see them as this nefarious force that is so powerful and so devious and so pervasive and so hard to understand. At the end of World War II and the beginning of what became the Cold War, uh, George Kennan looked at the Soviets and tried to psychoanalyze them and say, you know, what's the Russian soul? There's this long-running American fascination with Russia that always sort of highlights, accentuates, exaggerates our own strengths and weaknesses uh, in a weird way. I've always thought 
that the United States and the Soviet Union were both really interesting in the sense that they were two of the only nations in the history of the world to be created, founded upon an ideological precept as opposed to an ethno-national or racial kind of identity, like Germany or France or Italy. I mean, every nation is an imagined community. We know this from Benedict Anderson. But still, the U.S. and the USSR have this sort of weird symmetry. And we have been obsessed with Russia during the Cold War, after the Cold War, and as we're going to find out from Sean, before the Cold War. So he has a lot of interesting things to say about it. I think that it's going to be very uh, enlightening. Very nice, very nice. I'll tell you, comedy, comedy, huh? Comedy, it's in my blood. I wish it was in my act. Say hello to Yakov Smirnov. Okay, here we are. Okay. Hi. My name is Yakov Smirnov. I am a comedian from Russia. Thank you very much. I want to explain to you what happened to that airplane. I am actually from Russia. I was born there, grew up there, worked as a comedian out there. What surprises me, American people don't know we have comedy in Russia. We have comedians. They're there. They're dead. They're there. It's very hard to do comedy in Soviet Union. You have to write out all your material and you send it to Department of Jokes. I'm not making this up. They send it back to you, censored. You have to stay with the script. You cannot improvise. If someone heckles you from the audience, you can't say, like, your mother wears army boots. Because she probably does. And she will hurt you. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. They're not going anywhere. You gotta be very selective, very careful with what jokes you say. If you say, like, take my wife, please, you get home, she's gone. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Sure. I am using plural pronouns, but it is just me in this case. Um, I, I understand. <laughs> this is the royal we. Can you do the whole, my name is, and I do this, or whatever, that sort of okay. uh, intro? And- uh, my name is Sean Guillory, and I'm the host of the SRB podcast, a weekly podcast on Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I have a PhD in history from UCLA in Russian history. And I write and comment on contemporary Russian politics, mostly from a historical perspective. And I also teach. I teach history as an adjunct at the University of Pittsburgh. I really enjoyed uh, listening to your talk about the history of Russophobia, because I think this is something that obviously is quite relevant to contemporary uh, political culture and international relations. So what's your take on this? I mean, has America been gripped with... um, just a, a, a huge round of uh, hysteria? Well, I, I do think that there are certainly legitimate concerns because any time um, a foreign government tries to interfere in um, a nation's electoral process, it should be certainly a thing of serious concern. But unfortunately, that, those legitimate concerns have been raised to a level of total hysteria. Um, and, and this is quite unfortunate because it makes me wonder... A, do the people who are spouting this stuff actually really care about the legitimate concerns? Or are they, they just using them to strike against political opponents, and that being you know Trump in particular? Um, it, it's unfortunate because you get a lot of 
understanding of this situation and the Russian effort to to interfere in Amer- the American elections by all sorts of crazy things. Like, for example, this past week, Reuters came out with a news story about a Russian think tank that you know came up with the blueprint for interfering in Russian elections. I mean, American elections, excuse me. And people who know about this think tank in, inside Russia um, just kind of laughed. And people who are well familiar with you know Russia in the United States also laughed. And it just makes it makes the American security services who are feeding journalists this material look like they don't understand the country they're supposed to be protecting us from. And journalists are, I think, also coming across quite bad because they're taking information about a country they know very little about and they're blowing it up and making it sound like Russia has all this evil powers to undermine, you know, quote unquote, Western liberal democracy. And it's just a fantastic it's it's a fantastic paranoia in in many respects do you think that this is just you know interested parties in russia maybe putin maybe some other folks who just sort of bumbled into something much bigger than they had imagined it could be i mean clearly there were efforts to promote misinformation about hillary clinton and to advance Trump's candidacy by somebody, you know, we are aware these organized efforts did exist, but, you know, there's a long way from some teenagers in Macedonia getting paid to start Twitter accounts and a massively nefarious and massively successful international conspiracy by a hostile power. So, uh, you know, is this just dumb luck or grand strategy? Well, I don't think it was dumb luck because there's certainly, in my view of this, is that there certainly was a, a Russian attempt and it was a coordinated attempt, uh, though there seems to be a, a tension between them wanting Trump and just kind of throwing dirt on and in, in pissing on Hillary Clinton. Um, because, you know, like everybody, the Russians thought that Trump wouldn't ever get close to the White House. And a lot of people have said that there, if you look at the narrative of Russian interference, there seems to be some kind of back and forth where they're kind of promoting Trump versus, you know, disparaging Clinton. But the problem with all of this is that the, the Russians just don't have this much power. You know, you, in all of these reports about Russian interference, you get them mentioning, you know, Russia Today or RT and Sputnik. I mean, these organizations have a very, very small audience in, in America and in the West in general. Nobody really watches RT in the United States. And what this, uh, this strange kind of obsession over the power of, of disinformation from the Russians, it completely absolves and obscures the fact that you have media organizations in this country who have far larger audiences sending the same kinds of misinformation uh, about the Democratic Party or American politics or whatever. And in a way, Russia is acting as um, a way to displace the real concerns and crises in American politics. So you don't have to look at the state of American media or the state of American politics or the failures of the Democratic Party and the Hillary Clinton campaign, you can just look to the Russians and say, well, the Russians did X, Y, and Z. 
And all of the talk about the Russians moves away from having any discussion about the state of, of the United States within. You know, and also take Trump, for example, right? Trump is compared to everyone, Putin, Hitler, Mussolini, Hugo Chavez, but very rarely to someone within the United States. He's not thought about as a product of American society and American politics. He's some outside other or some outside other who's been injected like a virus into the United States from, say, the Russians or whatever. And so I can't help to see that you do, again, you have these legitimate concerns about Russian interference, but the inflation of their power and the inflation of their significance, I think, is a way to deal with the very real trauma of Trump's election. Right. I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I thought, you know, in your work, it's just so interesting because Russia is like this dark mirror of America or it's this funhouse mirror of America. We have this weird twinned relationship that goes way beyond the Cold War or the post-Cold War. And so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about the different ways that Americans have um, created their own imagined Russians over time. What's amazing is when you look at the pre- 1880s history of American-Russian relations, you find um, them to be quite friendly. And this history has been totally forgotten. And it's very interesting because, first off, in the early 19th century, Russia was seen as mostly inconsequential to the United States. It was thought of as a far-off place that really has no impact on American interests. And you had these interesting periods where, for example, Thomas Jefferson is in correspondence with Alexander I. Um, You have, you know, John Quincy Adams being in Russia at the age of 14 in St. Petersburg and eventually becoming the first foreign minister to Russia. You have the fact that you have a Russian support of the North in the American Civil War, the only great power. And you have these really interesting instances where, you know, based on cartoons I found in the 19th century publications of, you know, um, the American eagle and a Russian bear walking hand in hand while the the British and the French, British as Britain as a lion and the French as as a rooster kind of cowering in a corner. And, how, and articles talking about how the so-called Western powers provided no aid to America and our great friends the Russians did. So this history, I think, is really important because, first off, our understanding of American-Russian relations, especially by some people, is placed as this eternal antagonism that's been, you know, since the beginning of the birth of the American Republic. And it's just not true, first off. And it's a lot of present-day and even 20th century relations with Russia read backwards. Um, so, you know, I don't know what lessons the ni- these 19th century relations could provide for the present, but it does seem to, for me, it emphasizes the fact that current Russian-American relations don't have to be this way. Right. And I, I think that's really interesting because the, the 19th century history is, like you said, almost entirely, if not entirely forgotten by all but experts in this field, I suppose. Um, but then the 20th century history is so complex for, you know, a dizzying number of reasons. The, one of the things I've always found really intriguing about the Cold War and really really the entire 20th century um, relationship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union is that these are two big empires, really, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that are 
two of the only countries in the world that have ever been intentionally created under an ideological ethos as, in theory, you know, a big, sprawling, multi-ethnic nation states that aren't based on a traditional ethnic identity. Now, that's debatable. You know, you could say that the U.S. was believed to be a white man's country for much of its history. The Soviet Union was strongly identified with Russian language and culture. But still, they had this sort of weird twinning. uh, And I like that expression a lot because they, they had something in common. They were not many countries in world history have been created um, with this sort of transcendent ethos. And it seems like there's something about the two of them that I, I've always found really fascinating in their mirror relationship of a sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was, you know, this was recognized in the mid to late 19th century, though Russia always, well, Russia ha- also had an image of being a despotic country it had an image in the mm-hmm. United States of its people being slavish and, and all of the standard tropes that the Europeans held, you know, particularly the Germans, the French, and the Russia and, and the British. However, there was also this interesting understanding of this um, almost kindred spirit in the fact that both Russia and the United States uh, had experiences of human bondage uh, and abolished mm. both those systems only a few years apart. Right. You have this, as you said, it being Russia and the United States not being nation states. They're not like Germany. They're not like France. They're not like Britain. They are inherently multi-ethnic, multilingual, and multi-confessional. Right. And both nations use that to varying degrees as a mark of their distinctiveness and a mark of their uh, power. I mean, even Putin today speaks about how diversity in Russia is a strength. Really? <laughs> of course. Of course. I'm, I'm, I'm responding incredulously because the image that we have of Putin and his movement is all about going back to, you know, traditional Russian values and the Orthodox Church and, yeah. you, know, cult, you know, sort of conservative, uh, social conservative, cultural nationalism. Um, so they, they Putin do. Is, Putin is not a nationalist. He's not an ethno-nationalist. This is one of the things that drives me nuts. Putin is many things. He's not an ethno-nationalist. He's not an anti-Semite. You know, I mentioned the anti-Semite part because this is very rare for Russian rulers to not be anti-Semitic. Putin uses nationalist rhetoric, Russian ethno-nationalist rhetoric. He absolutely does. But the Kremlin has always been very careful with this. I mean, if he was such an ethno-nationalist as every people in the West are saying, then why are they constantly jailing ethno-nationalists? You know, there's been a mass jailing of the leadership of ethno-nationalists in Russia over the last two years. Why do ethno-nationalists hate Putin? Because he's not nationalist enough. The Russian leadership for, for several centuries has always had a multi-ethnic character. Whether it's Russian, Georgian, under Stalin, um, the Bolshevik party itself was quite multi-ethnic until after Stalin's death, and then the leadership became mostly Russian, though Khrushchev himself was Ukrainian. In the Tsarist court, you had Baltic Germans. You had the, as they moved west, they incorporated the elites of non-Russian peoples. Like today, you speak about social conservative values. This is absolutely true, this effort to kind of revive social conservative or Russian values, as they say. But for example, I just interviewed a guy about uh, Russian Orthodox belief and how the Russian Orthodox Church can teach 
orthodoxy in public schools, but public schools also have to provide the opportunity for people to learn about Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism. The ethno-nationalist issue in Russia is a very, very dangerous thing, and I think the government understands it very well, and they're terrified of it. Right. Wow. That is, I think that's something that our listeners are going to uh, be very edified to learn about, because that is not the way that it is portrayed in Western media. No, it's, it's patriotism. I mean, you know, people say Putin is a nationalist. No, he's a patriot. He's not a, I, I'm very sensitive to this term nationalist, because he's, he's not an ethno-nationalist. He's a statist. First and foremost, he's a statist. Right, and that, that makes sense in terms of uh, some of the nostalgia for the Soviet Union, and yeah, um, yeah that, that is very widespread and has been uh, for years. I just want to ask you about, this is something that's always bugged me a little bit. I love to use the long telegram in teaching 20th century yeah. U.S. history, right? Because you've got our American diplomat, Kennan, who's writing literally the world's longest telegram ever psychoanalyzing the sort of uh, Russian slash czarist slash Marxist-Leninist spirit and psychology and trying to explain why is Russia so fucked up? Like, why, <laughs> why are they so paranoid and weird and authoritarian and despotic? And it's because it's a big, an empire on a big vulnerable plane that's been invaded many times. It has this tradition of autocracy and that's sort of combined with the virulent strain of Marxist world domination. I've, I've often felt like we do try to psychoanalyze our opponents, whether it's in Tehran or Moscow or, or Hanoi or wherever. And I feel like that gets us into a lot of trouble throughout our history. So why, why, what do you think about this uh, American need to sort of... Um, do a little armchair psychoanalysis of the Russian spirit. Well, I I'm certainly am not a, an opponent of psychoanalysis. It's, it's taking certain Russian characteristics and making them eternal, as if there's been no historical change. As if you can go back to Ivan Grozny or Ivan the Terrible and say that Ivan the Terrible and Stalin are the same, or that Stalin and Putin are the same. You know, this, I think this is the problem. The problem is the American tendency to apply that these countries exist with no history, whereas for us, we, we our self-evaluation is a country that's always in history. Right. It's always moving with history. Right. And somehow, you know, Russians or Iranians or whoever are immune to history. I, I think that's what it is. It's also taking traits, you know, take autocracy, for example. Yeah, Russian, Russia has had authoritarian government for a very, very long time. However, the various tropes of understanding what Russian autocracy is come from travel accounts in the 16th century from <laughs> Europe. And these tropes, you know, Russia as a barbarous land, for example, is a trope that's repeated over and over again. Russia as an inherently imperialistic country is a trope that comes out of a fake document produced in the early 19th century called the Testament of Peter the Great. Right. That lays out Russia as a, a power not just seeking to go to you know the Pacific shore, but a power that's seeking global domination. And this fake text, this forgery, came up repeatedly in the 19th century 
every time you know there was fear of Russia in Europe, it didn't have much currency in the United States, surprisingly. But you see it finally, the, some of the elements of it come into, say, Kennan, who uh, uh, I haven't read Kennan's long telegram in a really long time. Maybe I should. Uh, but a, a scholar friend of mine was reading it recently, and he his comment was, uh, Kennan's document comes off as a completely paranoid document. Well, that's, that's kind of uh, <laughs> sort of alluding to is like, are we projecting because, I mean, it's a super paranoid document. It's a paranoid document about a supposedly paranoid country. And you really have to ask yourself. Yeah, you have to ask yourself. And I mean, this is not to say, you know, uh, not to say that Russia doesn't pose and doesn't try a, a threat or doesn't try to control the states along its borders, right? Like the United States, it has its own concept of sphere of influence. It has its own concept of manifest destiny. It has its own concept of uh, Russia having a divine mission, not unlike the United States having a divine mission. But what the Russians don't do that's different than the United States is that the Russians don't demand other societies to be like them. There's something with, and this is what I've been trying to figure out, there's something in the American political psyche that demands mimicry. Mm -hmm. That mimicry is what allows for security. You know, what, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Like... And that's what's interesting. In the in the 1880s, there is a shift where the Russia, until that point, is recognized in most American minds as having a parallel existence to the United States. In the 1880s, it shifts to one of a desire for mimicry, a desire for Russia to become like the United States. You know, as one socialist uh, said, for Russia to become um, a United States of Russia. Right, right. Right. And Russia's evaluation on the level of civilization is measured in its proximity or distance from the United States. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is why is the United States the ruler for measuring one's proximity to modernity, civilization, however? Right. 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 I mean, the Russians in Russia, there are many, many problems. Human rights, authoritarian government, the lack of democracy, a pretty much tamed civil society, uh, a, a pretty tamed media, lack of, of open political activism. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of problems, but those are the problems for Russians themselves. Now, just to bring it all back home, I mean, one of the things I've found very striking is the fact that we have this sort of wild mood swing about Russia where, you know, in the 80s, it's this giant colossus that, you know, is supposedly threatening us. And then it goes completely opposite direction in the 90s. It's this sort of sad, you know, the sick man of Eurasia. Like, isn't it so sad that they're like, can't get their shit together and they're so weak and hey, we won. And now, you know, since especially November 8th, there's been this sense of like, man, Russia is like so nefarious and so powerful and dangerous and threatening. And why do you think that we we need to see them in such in either direction in such drastic terms? Right. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when Russia is looking like it's trying to be more like us or more like the West, quote unquote, it's seen more favorable uh, when it's not it's seen, of course, as more threatening. And this is the problem I have. Like, I don't think we need to be friends with Russia, but we have to deal, at least deal with the Russia we have and not the Russia we want. Right. As long as we keep on dealing with the Russia we want, 
we're going to project more onto it that's going to blur and obscure the situation with, with that country and inside that country. Also, too, I have to say that it's ascribing Russia powers it doesn't have. Right. Russia is not, today, is not the Soviet Union. No one around the world wants anything the Russians are selling, except for <laughs> oil and gas. Right. They don't want, they have no ideology. They're not projecting an economic or social model or ideological model. They have very little influence over Europe, let alone the rest of Eurasia and Africa and Latin America. They can barely control their borders, the border states, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, and other ex-Soviet states. They've been ineffective in kind of manipulating the politics there, more or less. Compared to, say, China, they don't stack up economically. And therefore, giving Russia these amazing powers of manipulation is a misdiagnosis of their level of power. Right. They're not, they, you know, if you think of it, in the Soviet period, developing countries were copying Soviet models. Right. Developing countries, nationalist movements were attracted to Soviet ideology. It's just not the case now. No, this is great. I mean, I, I think this is going to help people who are kind of freaking out and, as you so aptly put it, ascribing powers that they do not have to get a little bit of context and right. a little one, bit of... One other point about this? Yeah. Ironically, all of this stuff feeds directly into the Putin cult in the sense of by making Putin have all of these wondrous powers, this is exactly the type of thing he, he wants. Right. By blowing him up as a supervillain. You know, in Russia, he's a superhero, you know, but he's like I like to say, but he's still super. Therefore, in, a, in an odd way, all of the hysteria around Russia is contributing to the Putin cult. That seems absolutely the case. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's powerful either way, whether it's good or bad. Right. And uh, right. and that is um, almost free publicity for him, which the yeah. uh, the Democratic Party and liberal journalists are uh, very very happy to provide, ironically. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. So. Well, um, I, I, this has been uh, very enriching and valuable, I think, for uh, people who hopefully be listening to this. Um, thank you so much, Sean. I really right, appreciate have a good it. Day, Alex. You Thanks. too. Bye. Bye. to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you and you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do but don't you worry no more ashes no more sackcloth and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve for if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve. And we will all go together when we go. We would like to thank Drs. Gilroy and uh, Moran for their interview. And just leave you with a couple parting thoughts. You know, we we like this topic. We think it's an interesting topic, but we also are doing it because immediately in the press and throughout, you know, blaming that liberal media, um, 
it's reactionary. <laughs> it's a very reactionary time, you know. If you go back and watch even something as stupid from the early 60s as Rocky and Bullwinkle, remember, like, it's Boris and Natasha, Moose and Squirrel. Moose and Squirrel. Boris's eyes in the first season were red. That's how much we liked the communists back then. You know, and as you heard in the previous interviews, this relationship goes back to the British in the 19th century, and then the relationship changes and changes and changes, but they have always been our nemesis. And you can see it throughout movies of the 80s and, you know, concepts in the earlier part of the 19th century. It's been around forever. And we destroyed them by financing Afghanistan, and they um, are now apparently hacking our our internets. They've stolen our internets. I know, right? But regardless, tune in next month when we'll have another episode of Doom to Repeat, uh, where we'll be talking another big historical topic, which, since I don't have my schedule, I'll figure it out eventually. But I promise we have another episode coming. I feel like we're doomed to repeat this. I think we're doomed to repeat the fact that I won't remember a damn thing. I've been Nick Hoffman, your host. And Alex Cummings. Your other host. Yes. Talk to you next time, guys. to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you and you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do but don't you worry no more ashes no more sackcloth and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve, and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we. Doomed to Repeat is a production of Tropics of Meta and Dude's Letter Podcast. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman, lecturer at Kennesaw State University and PhD candidate at Georgia State University. And it is co hosted by Alex Cummings, um, assistant professor at Georgia State University and editor at Tropics of Meta. Um, find his book, The Democracy of Sound, in both hardback and paperback forms. We would like to thank Doctors Jack Moran and Sean Gilroy for their help in this episode. Um, the audio clips you heard came from The Simpsons, Weird Al Yankovic, the Young Comedian Special of Yakov Smirnoff, Doctor Strangelove, and we are being played out by the great Tom Lehrer. Thanks. There'll be a storm before the calm. And we will all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake.